Hi, this is Derek Harp, the founder and chairman of CSA, and your host for the CSA podcast show. And I'm really excited about this next episode. If you've tuned in before, you know I've been interviewing a diverse group of industry leaders about their personal journeys, their personal stories, with the hope of uh, two things. One, being interesting to anybody in the industry, uh, people's personal stories. You know, how did that person uh, get where they are today? And what, what were the steps along the way? But most importantly, we hope to uncover, and so far we have, real nuggets that people could use as career choices themselves, things they might emulate, things they might decide, oh, I could do that uh, in their own career, especially our, uh, our people that are entering the workforce right now or that are at early stages of their career where there's still a lot of strategy and tactics of what move do I make next? And these sessions have definitely teased out some gold nuggets. So uh, with no further ado, I'd like to introduce uh, today's guest, which is Bill Malik, VP of Infrastructure Strategies at Trend Micro. You know, Bill is He's certainly a well-known analyst and writer and speaker. He's been in the industry, as we'll talk about. He's been doing a lot of things uh, over quite a bit of time and uh, is well-known for being excellent in some of those. But he's also an idea explorer and a father and a grandfather and a wine connoisseur and a chef, I've come to find out, and uh, a former programmer who still likes to dabble in it for fun, and even a DJ once upon a time. So this is a man who's touched a lot of things, and I think we're just cracking open that war chest or, or, or uh, treasure chest of uh, experiences uh, with just that list. So Bill, welcome to the show. Very happy to be here. Thanks, Terry. So um, uh, as I always sort of uh, start these shows, Bill, I, I, uh, I liken um, uh, modern cybersecurity, uh, you know, folks to, uh, you know, today's uh, superheroes. Uh, we have to, um, you know, uh, every superhero has a backstory. And so I like to get you know, into that. And, uh, and so um, the first thing I was going to sort of ask you is just formatively, you know, where, where, what part of the world do you hail from? Where'd you, where'd you grow up? Well, my uh, mother was a virgin queen and my father was a shower of gold in my youth. No. <laughs> I was born in Detroit. Um, my uh, grandfather immigrated from India after World War I. My mom's parents immigrated from Poland before World War I. So I'm a Heinz. I'm a three-fourths uh, the grandson of immigrants. And uh, I, I have to tell you, uh, my family's experience is this is the land of opportunity. Uh, the kinds of things you can do here, if you've got good head on your shoulders and some gumption, you can you can get get where you need to go. Yeah, so, well, yeah. that's you know that's that's uh, it's funny. I, I didn't I don't know that I've gotten sort of that same piece from her, but I think there's a common theme there. People coming from uh, coming from immigrant backgrounds. I mean, that's that's the sort of underpinnings of our country, right? Uh, yeah. So um, I was. Think it's interesting professionally you know first job but in this case like first i'm asking sort of first childhood sort of engagement with work because it's just curious where people start there's newspapers and lawn mowing you know what did you first start doing in that in that realm the first time i had to use my social security card was when i got a job sweeping the floor at the rosemar college of beauty which is in bisbee arizona and that was while i was in high school uh, my mom got a position as a uh, professor of English at a new, uh, then new junior college just opening in Southern Arizona. And so we relocated from Michigan to Arizona. And uh, I went to high school there and that was my, my first work. That was great. Beauticians are a great bunch of people. A lot of fun, easy to talk to, personable, outgoing. And uh, I, just, I just had a ball. 
Well, that's great. You know, uh, not everybody's sort of first foray into sort of uh, a- any professional work is positive. <laughs> Sometimes it's, uh, <laughs> it's the thing that happened to me, but uh, that's good. Uh, that you're, you have a good memory of it. Where does technology, you know, if yet come into play? And, and I am curious as sort of the educational path. And you went to uh, a very well-known uh, school. Um, is technology coming to play before your post high school years or, you know, in, in your life in any way? Not really. Uh, there was one question on the uh, senior math exam uh, about uh, programming, and I guessed the right answer. That uh, was, you know, what is which of these expressions correctly represents this formula? And they were using Fortran. Didn't know what Fortran was, but it just seemed to me if I were to write a language that could express things, it would look more like option C than any other. Um, I did uh, get a uh, the opportunity to go to MIT, and certainly while there, computers all over the place. Uh, in fact, that was my first personal computer. It was a 36030 uh, in building 20. <laughs> Between midnight and 2 a.m., I had free run of the whole thing. Uh, well, I think it was about a tenth of a MIPS, so not a big machine. Yeah, I, I, you know, I recognize my my brother was of the era of the scheduled time. And by the time I came, some of that had started to go, you know, go away. And like, you got to be at the time, at, you know, this at this particular time is when you get some time on this machine. <laughs> right, right. And and most of us just had to hand in our, our programs as card decks. And then the next day we got the right, printed right. listing, which told us whether or not we'd, you know, typed all of the words correctly. Yeah, they get fed, they would get fed in uh, before you get to see the results, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. yeah, was, it was an interesting time. So technology right there, you, that, that's, that's the intersection for you. Um, I'm curious, you know, anything, you know, this would be unusual, anything with security uh, even coming up at that time? Well, uh, those were interesting times. Uh, MIT was involved with a project to uh, develop a secure system that could do uh, time sharing. And the system they were working on was called Multics. <laughs> now, the interesting thing about Multics was it was so elaborate and so complex that some of the people working on it sort of left in disgust and went to Bell Labs in New Jersey, and they decided to do the opposite of Multics. Instead of having six rings of protection, their system had one. Instead of having different drivers for every device, their system had one. In fact, they even changed the name from Multics to Unix. So yeah, they're at the beginning. Now with regard to security, we had an interesting, uh, I, I don't know if it's called a bug or a feature. If you were on the system for too long, it would type out, I want a cookie. Now, if you ignored that, it would type it out again. If you typed in the word cookie, C-O-O-K-I-E, it would go away, you'd never see the program again. But if you ignored it six times, it would crash your system. Now, they never found where cookie was actually hidden. It was somewhere in ring five. I have it on good authority from a, class, a, a dorm mate of mine. But yeah, that was the first time I ever got a chance to take a look at security. Like, why the heck does this happen? So I did take a few comp sci courses. I was actually a math major, but uh, computing seemed fairly interesting. Yeah, well, and it becomes part of your uh, part of your journey, you know, for sure. It's interesting, you know, um, I didn't know that anybody was working with cookies back then. I thought that was a relatively new term. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> the word has deep origins, as a lot of things in, in IT do, actually. Uh, deep in the sense of, you know, more than one generation back. Yeah. 
And, you know, and my question about security going back that far is, is, is with no expectation that, that that's a main focus. We know that the, the underpinnings of all this technology wasn't about security. It was about re- reliable connections and reliable message sending and things like that. But it, it is curious when that comes up for people. And so I think we'll, we'll suss that out as we talk through some of your career paths. I'll be sure. curious for you to bring that up and just say, this is where I really you know, formally would say, this is where I start to look at that, you know, look at that aspect. And you've got, you know, I, I've, of course, prepared and look ahead at, at places you've been, and it's a lot of uh, places and some very, very well-known names you've been, uh, you know, at, uh, I just, in, 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 you know, can talk about some of these, you know, maybe you can pull a couple of stories out, but I'll just say, I mean, John Hancock, IBM, Gartner, KPMG, Waveset, Sun, uh, Aberdeen Group, uh, Georgia Tech, Fisher International, Trusted Network Technology, Malik Consulting, which we'll talk about that. That's your own company. Uh, Gartner yeah. again, uh, Malik Consulting, Cognizant, uh, Optive, and now Trend Micro. That's an amazing list of, of milestones. W- where would you like to start as far as picking out some stories on that? You know, is, is obviously technology is a thread there from, from the get-go. You know, where does security come into that, uh, into that, or into that kind of path? When I was in school, I did play around with machines. I had a few classes in programming, um, but my work, my love uh, outside of uh, school was actually, I was a bookseller. There was a chain of bookstores in the Boston area called the Paperback Booksmith. And I worked the midnight to eight shift at the um, Booksmith in uh, Harvard Square. And boy, wonderful stories to tell over a beer about the kinds of folks that wander into a bookstore in Harvard Square at three in the morning. <laughs> I bet. Really, really interesting people with tremendous, uh, tremendous backgrounds and powerful insights. So great, great sense of so just a just a loving, uh, intellectually rich uh, community. Lots of lots of perspectives. Uh, you learn to look past the way people look and listen to what they say. Uh, it's just, uh, well, one time I was uh, about to leave, so it was a little before eight in the morning, and the uh, owner of the store came in, and there was a woman who was a professor of English at, uh, at Harvard. She was walking by, and the owner came in, and his dog was with him. And he goes, come here, John Thomas, come here, John Thomas. And then the lady starts laughing and says, are you a D.H. Lawrence fan? And he goes, yeah. Uh, he goes, oh, John Thomas. Yeah, it is. And then the cabbie outside goes, hey, Mac, John Thomas? Ain't that the name of the second version of D.H. Lawrence's magnum opus? <laughs> it's like, yeah, again. But understand, they have PhDs in literature driving cabs in Boston. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. But it was, it was just, it was uh, an environment impossible to leave. I, I just, uh, were, and I worked there until we got through the, um, it was the Nixon recession, 73. And I went to work at an employment agency. Odds twist, I went to them and said, uh, you know, I'd like to have a job. And they said, well, we've got an opening. So I didn't think that's how it worked. But I worked as an employment agent for a while, uh, helped placing programmers into jobs in the greater Boston area. And it turned out that the John Hancock had an opening. So I decided I was a suitable candidate, <laughs> set myself over there and started writing code for them. That actually led to my first information security um, moment. Uh, as an app developer, I was there a total of five years, the first half in app programming for financial systems, second half in systems. Our uh, application programming leader uh, came to me and said, Bill, we've got a problem. When we send a benefit check, sometimes it gets 
modified and then cash. And we end up spending more money than we intended. And this was a problem because the Hancock had a couple of branches of the military as clients. And in South Asia and the Philippines, if you sent a claim check out for, say, $315, the claimant would take it home and overtype it. So it would say $898. And then they'd take it to the bank. And the bank clerk, who may have been, you know, the client's second cousin, would say, oh, looks good to me and runs the thing through. The Hancock was losing about $900,000 a month. And I said, is there any way you can you know, help with this thing? And I said, well, when I fill out a regular check, I just write the amount underneath. Can we like just write the amount underneath? And they said, sure, go ahead, give it a try. So I wrote a little bit of code that would take the a dollar amount and print it in a line of English. Very simple, just a table lookup, right? Um, so it would say 300 in English words, $15, then and zero zero one hundred cents. And that would be underneath the line is the page of the order of. That um, bit of code made it onto the share mods tape and it got circulated among most businesses. So these days, whenever you see the printed amount on a check, I wrote that code back in 1975. That is so, super cool. Yeah, so I'm, I'm very proud of that. That was, that was one of the two biggest programming things I've, I've ever done. So, yeah. And, and so back to school, you studied mathematics. Did you study and you were exposed to all this computer technology? Did you study programming? Because I think we have people entering the workforce saying, how do I become, you know, how do I break into the security industry? You can come from lots of backgrounds. What was that logical step? Well, uh, the reality is that back then, we're talking early 70s, there was no such thing as a computer science degree. Right. Uh, At at MIT, it was taught out of the electrical engineering department. However, the systems programming course was taught by John Donovan out of the Sloan School of Management. I don't know why. Not, you know, academic (laughs) uh, arguments and stuff. I just just can't fathom them. So, but I did take uh, an introductory programming class and uh, I I dropped it because I was going to fail. And the reason I was going to fail was I was told, you know, write the instructions that will make this computer add something. And at that point, it's like, make the computer add? I don't don't understand how this works. And I dropped the class and ended up taking an electrical engineering lab where they gave me a bucket of transistors. And under the guidance of Professor Henry Kendall, I uh, soldered together transistors until I could build a circuit that would reliably add two two-digit binary numbers and blink a light. So if you added one zero to one zero, the result would be zero zero with a one carry. And whenever I was confronted with a mathematical problem in programming, I would sit down and I'd draw the circuit. I'd say, okay, I I can see how this thing would go. And then I would figure out, you know, and eventually I got comfortable with it. But yeah, it's not natural. And, you know, you couldn't even get a, I think you could get a, course six subdivision three degree, which, which looked at programming problems, but there wasn't a robust curriculum at that time. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that makes sense historically. So John Hancock and IBM, you, it is involved in sort of, in, in all this program, but then you get in this, you know, you, I love how your curse has got so many key pieces. You're there, you're at uh, you sort of uh, uh, 
uh, well, in an end user and then at a, you know, at a, I don't know how you categorize IBM because you, you could have been in their sort of internal stuff or maybe, you know, they, they're obviously doing external parties, uh, services and products. And then you end up yeah. a partner. So now you're an analyst firm, you know, so more slices of the pie. If you look at your whole career, you've sort of touched each slice of the pie in the industry. You end up at Gartner and you're there a long time and you write hundred, you know, 150 papers. I think I read somewhere. Um, yeah. What, you know, what's the Gartner timeline? I left IBM in 90, um, and I feel bad about that. I mean, it was me and John Akers, and I left, and it just, you know, we both went as far as we could with the company. But he wasn't able to carry it the next step. So, uh, yeah, I went to I went to Gartner because uh, at IBM, I was a programmer. I wrote code for the mainframe operating system. Then I was in testing, then in planning, and then headquarters. During that time, I started doing presentations. That was when I fell in love with being on stage. Now, I'd been a DJ in high school and college, KSUN, the 250-watt gas of Southern Arizona. Uh, so I did spin discs and, you know, open up the new box from Atlantic Records to see what was going to be hot next week. But during the Gartner days, I got a chance to work initially in systems management. And then I wrote a paper called uh, RACF Migration Experience. That's the mainframe security product. And I talked about people who move from the CA products to the IBM product. Uh, normally, when you write a note in those days at Gartner, if you get five inquiries, that's considered a powerful note. I got 200. <laughs> and so it was like, ooh, you know, I think I've, I've hit a live wire. So there was a group doing network security, but nobody was looking at this side of it. So I wrote, a, wrote another note called Land Security at the Crossroads. Uh, again, this is early 90s. And so the question was Novell Netware versus Banyan Vines, <laughs> because Windows had not yet released yeah, yeah. its form of networking. And same thing happened. Hundreds of inquiries came in about this. And so leadership said, you will develop an information security service. Well, I had just got married and I had a you know, young child on the way and uh, just didn't want to do the travel. Uh, they found a couple of really, really strong guys uh, who led the thing in those initial years. Uh, I continued to write and support areas of disaster recovery, business continuity, encryption, uh, what became known as identity management later. Uh, so I got into many of those things, but my biggest thrill was getting somebody uh, smarter than me excited about it, uh, trying to tell them the kinds of things that were happening, the kinds of things that we were learning. Um, and I got some really top tour analysts at Gartner to sort of come over and get excited, sharing the enthusiasm, what was going on. So we, we built a fairly nice, nice little community there. I ran the information security strategy service until I left in 2001. And I also ran the uh, middleware and application integration service. I contributed to both, but uh, mostly to the uh, first one. I got, a, I got an award for uh, the presentation that was used most. It was my enterprise-wide security uh, summary, uh, just covering the landscape of all the things that were going on. Uh, I was delivering that pitch twice a week for like a year and a half. So it's, it's interesting, you know, you programming and then, you know, the analyst and then strategy later and writing and, and, and you know, all, all these different things you've touched on. How important was the, were those Gartner years to, to who you are today, writing, analyzing, doing the analyst work and writing and being able to consume a lot of information as part of that? Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, there were two uh, key elements that positioned me for that. Um, both were the fruit of things that happened earlier. One was uh, my senior high school English teacher was a wonderful woman named Ann Medigovich. 
And she would insist that we write every day. We would write in her class. Sometimes we would stay after school to write in her class. And so I just got into the habit of not being intimidated by a blank piece of paper and I would write. It wasn't, you know, Hemingway, (laughs) but I was writing. And then the second thing that happened was during my IBM days, I got the chance to do some teaching. And when the light goes on, I worked with an Explorer Scout troop that was involved in programming. When the light goes on, the thrill that I got from being able to show somebody, what does it mean when you tell the computer to add two numbers, uh, was so gratifying. I said, you know, I really like doing this. I want to I want to see if I could do this some more. Now, along the way, of course, one of the things I learned in school was what they call the principle of selective neglect. Uh, if you do all the reading that is assigned to you in every class, you will not sleep. Okay? There's more than 168 hours in reading. So you had to learn how to quickly summarize, identify the high points and retain that so you could then build something useful. So those factors came together and helped me become, I think, a better writer and a decent presenter while I was with Gardner. So not everybody can go work for an analyst firm. There's only so many, there's only so many positions, but do you think there are writing opportunities? You know, I know we have a lot of people in our, uh, in our community saying, how do I get, you know, how do I get to the next level? How do I prepare myself for future, more substantive roles? And so are there writing you know, writing opportunities that one might not think of that aren't necessarily formally being paid to be an analyst and write for, you know, for an analyst firm? Well, in any organization, there's going to be uh, a need for some sort of internal technical support. And, you know, you start at the bottom, Uh, you start uh, answering stuff at the help desk. And then as you build skill and get better at it, you're going to find that you're learning things, write those down, circulate them. Tell people, this is a summary of what I've learned from the five calls I've dealt with over this. Is this useful? And people say, oh my gosh, you know, could you write a training manual? Yes, I can. I think I'll try. <laughs> and you give it a go. Um, and what you'll find is that you may not think you're a very good writer, but you're probably a better writer than you think. Uh, you can communicate effectively. You can bring people to see things uh, in a new light. If, you, uh, if you're willing to work at it and, and take feedback. So yeah, there, there are lots of ways you can get into writing. It, it doesn't have to be the primary mission of the job, but doing it as part of what you're doing uh, will build a skill. And effectively, as you go up in the level of responsibility in every organization, rarely is the turning point going to be greater technical depth. It's more going to be based on how well you can explain what's going on, yeah. how well you can instruct, how we can bring people in. That, that, I think, is one of those nuggets. I mean, every one of these, these interviews has yielded something like that. And I think that was one right there, which is it's not going to be greater and greater for the most part. And I think you probably caveated in your head. I did, too. There's exceptions where deeply technical you know, is the distinction. But for most, it's going to be about how you communicate, right? It's about how you how you bring people together, bring them along, convince or whatever. It's all about this communication. So written, but also verbal. And, oh, yeah. and you're doing that too at this time, right? Or, or even before you're speaking. So I think people can seek out, and I think there are a lot of opportunities, you know, seek out opportunities to write, but seek out opportunities to also speak, no matter where that is. I suppose if you're really early, I've told people like, yeah, go do Toastmasters. I mean, if you're, if it's a career yes, where you've done no speaking and it's, it's a nervous producing thing, then work on that. But let's say you like to do it. Now find venues where you can talk about some of the technology or security or whatever your your area is, right? Sure. Get involved with the local community college. 
see if there's something on. Get involved with a local community theater, getting up on stage, playing a role, learning your lines, understanding what's going on, getting used to the process. That way, I, I should tell you, I've been doing this now for almost 40 years, speaking, I mean. Uh, I still get nervous. I still get that. I think somebody referred to it as the sweat of perfection. <laughs> if you don't, if you don't feel that, you know, you need to run a run a check, run a level one diagnostic. diagnostic. <laughs> it's, there, there is something scary about standing up in front of a bunch of people and sharing your thoughts. Uh, so, and welcome that because that's the thing that's going to make it a good pitch. If you're not. If you're not nervous, if you're not emotionally connected, your audience is going to believe you're not engaged at all, and they're not going to stay with you. It, it's uh, it can be tough. It can be tough. Yeah. Well, so to round out, you, you you're, you've been programming things. Now you're analyzing, writing, speaking. Now you decide to go and say, you know, better check out the consulting realm, and you go to KPMG, and yeah. so professional services, and that's another slice of the pie. Yeah, that was an interesting transition. Um, as we all remember, that was uh, September 11. That was 2001 when I made that transition. And like a lot of people, I did a deep think on what I want to be when I grow up. And I realized that I felt I could have a larger scope of uh, authority. Uh, I felt I could lead a, uh, a bigger mission. Um, I really had depth in information security and KPMG afforded the opportunity to try to leverage that into a national practice. And then in the aftermath of the dot-com crash with Sarbanes-Oxley, uh, KPMG decided organizationally that they did not want to go into the information security consulting business. And they spun out a group to do that. I was not part of that spin out. And so that was when I decided that, although I'd spent the better part of a year there, that that was not going to be a long-term uh, goal for me. Now, I did uh, work on developing uh, parts of the COBIT standards, a group called ISACA, Information Systems Audit and Control Association. Yep. And they have a very useful standard, Control Objectives for Business and Related Technology, COBIT. And it talks about how you would structure the operations of, in those days, a data center, and now we just say an IT environment, and helping people clarify what the processes are, what the responsibilities are, what do you do, what do you need to do it, what does your output look like? And who's going to make sure it's done right? Who's your mentor, your auditor, your, uh, your uh, supervisor? And you get those pieces in place. And now you have a really valuable resource. You have a model for what the business does. And once you have that explicit, you can begin putting um, efficiencies in place. Um, and, that was, and that was a lot of fun for me. I did I've done a lot of work on SDLC, capability maturity model, uh, COBIT. Uh, you get a lot more out of a good process than you do out of just, you know, people who are able to rise above the the fray of a crisis. A very, very strong believer in, in process. So yeah, learn, learn the ropes for what it is you're doing. Think about how you document it, how you train it, how you'd explain it to somebody who's not an expert in the field. And that can be an exceptionally valuable talent as well. So in the interest of time, there are more companies and places and roles that you had. I'm curious, where in this do you, do you get an intersection with whatever it was called at the time, operating technology, industrial control systems? Where, where does that occur? Or has it already in some of, maybe some of the previous roles we were discussing? Actually, that was fairly recent. Uh, most of the jobs that I had were working over stuff that I had done before. 
Um, I joined Waveset. They were looking for a chief technology officer. At the same time, I was looking for a position. I'd covered identity management at Gartner, and uh, they were able to put use to me. Ringo Starr was interviewed on a PBS special on the 30th anniversary of uh, the Sgt. Pepper album. And, you know, I, I loved Paul and, and John George was great. Ringo was kind of like, eh. So Ringo came on and I went to go make a sandwich. And he said, being drummer for the Beatles is the hardest job in the world. It was like, what, what? And I turned back and he said, what people don't realize is that John, Paul and George were all excellent drummers. So if I didn't do something spectacular, they'd throw me out of the studio and lay down the track without me. And then uh, George Martin pulled up a recording of one of the tracks on Sgt. Pepper. And he said, now just listen to this. And he isolated Ringo's drumming. And he said, you give that track to any jazz drummer, any rock drummer, and tell them to just do that. And what will happen is they'll start and then they'll stop. Being CTO at Waveset was like that because the four founders were already so good at communicating, explaining, talking about you know, what the technology offers, what a business value might be, and then finding or not finding that match with a customer need that if I didn't do, you know, consistently, at least as well as they did, I wouldn't have a job. So it kept me on my toes. We were acquired by Sun and I went to Sun and became their director of security marketing. Um, and I was there for, uh, for six months. But let's not get morose. That's an interesting, interesting story. But, you know, I think that's, again, sort of an interesting uh, comment for people at almost any level, right? That, that looking around and saying, I need to be, I need to operate at this level, especially with maybe who I aspire to be working with um, and um, set, set your own bar very high. That's what it sounds like you did. You set your own bar very, very high to, to, to achieve in that environment. And that's, that's, you know, that's something we can all do. A long time ago, a friend of mine said, there are two experiences in life. There are learning experiences, and then there's the last one. So I try to keep my focus on learning and gaining more information and understanding things more deeply. Yeah, yeah. We are, we are tremendously lucky to be alive in an age that has this much going on. It was ages like this in human history when the most amazing advances uh, materialized for us. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a crisis in some ways. It's challenging. We're going through a lot of changes. It's not stable in a way that we imagined it once was, which it never really was. Uh, but it gives us the opportunity to think. It gives us points of leverage, it gives us a fulcrum on which we can make things significantly better. So over this time frame, do you recall any significant challenges in how you overcame them in your career? Well, the interplay between what was going on in my personal life and professional life was tough. Um, so yeah, there were, there were things there. That would be for a, a different conversation. Uh, suffice it to say that when you figure out where you're going to work, the most important thing is not the brand of the company. It's the quality individual you're going to be working for. Now, I'm going to set that aside for people who are starting out in training positions. There you're, up, you're going to be given the tools because they need people to learn and come up to speed. But what you want to do is develop a relationship with a mentor and nurture that over time. That person will open doors for you. They will be your career counselor for a, for a stretch. So make sure you have an environment where that kind of thing can happen. Um, Waveset was phenomenal. The early days at Gartner was spectacular. 
And my time here at Trend Micro has been, I've just been so fortunate to be working with such an engaging, smart, enthusiastic group of people. So yeah, do, do look for that. Do look for that, uh, uh, that kind of environment. Uh, well, you, you just touched on something that comes up in every one of these mentorship. And I was going to ask you about that. What role that's played in being a mentee and a mentor in your, in your career path? I was very fortunate in having wonderful uh, mentors, people who are willing to take the time to uh, give me advice. Um, if you ever get the chance to see a one-hour video called The Last Lecture by Randy Pausch, he was the director of the group at Carnegie Mellon University that did all of the interesting work on animation and CGI. Um, and he talks about his own background. It's his story to tell. So I'd really want you to see that movie. But the thing that comes to mind there in particular is when he was in high school, he was going out for the football team and he was kind of skinny and he wasn't as big as some of the other guys on the team. And the coach wrote him real hard and he was really down in the dumps. And the assistant coach came up to him and said, yeah, coach was pretty rough on you today. And Randy goes, yeah, he was. And the assistant goes, that's a good thing. Because when you make mistakes and nobody cares, uh, you don't want to be in that place. So sometimes a mentor may not feel good, but the mentorship and the sense of guidance and direction and getting your head on straight and being in the right focus, that can be a, a real powerful thing. Personally, I have enjoyed being able to mentor colleagues. When I was at Gartner, I made it a point to try to give junior people big roles, um, new folks with relatively limited experience to take on big projects. I'd co-author papers with them uh, in order to get them visibility and then, you know, hive off this uh, piece of research. That's your baby now. Uh, and I'm, I'm very proud of the uh, five or six people that I was able to do that with professionally at that, at that stretch. Anything come to mind? I, I know people ask, well, where would I find one? You know, if they don't have one, if, if their organization is not proactively giving them one, you know, what, what does one do if they say, I want to have a mentor, but I'm not really sure how to, you know, how to go about doing that? Well, this gets into the whole problem of how do you build a network? Um, I mean, a personal, professional network. Outside of work, you can get involved with things. I uh, spent a lot of time with ISACA. I mentioned them before. There's an organization called InfraGuard, which is a public-private partnership between the FBI and leading businesses in different geographies. Uh, ours here in Connecticut is based out of Hartford. And it's a monthly meeting where you will sit down with people and they'll talk about various kinds of security uh, concerns. Some of it's going to be cybersecurity, some of it's physical security. So they look at all of the elements of critical infrastructure, uh, the federal list, and each state has its own independent list. You go there and you listen, you hang out. Uh, there used to be a group in uh, New York called the Electronic Crimes Task Force. It was run by the uh, Secret Service. And in the beginning, in the 90s, they were talking about theft of cable services and theft of long distance. And then they very quickly got into electronic fraud, wire fraud, um, theft of uh, stuff using the internet as a medium. So, you know, get, get connected with those kinds of things. There are resources available. There may be hobby clubs, there may be groups, there may be informal associations where you can find people and, you know, you'll say, hey, wow, you really seem to know what you're talking about. Could, you know, I, I grab 15 minutes of your time over a cup of coffee, you know, make it a beer and we're on, right? Uh, build that, build those connections. Uh, look outside the organization. Yeah, and you'd be surprised how often that works. I think some people don't ask 
because they already decide the answer is, well, why would someone do that? So the answer, you know, I'm not even going to ask. But the truth is, people are, and I find in the cybersecurity community, uh, which I've been in a long time, people are pretty willing to share um, Absolutely. over coffee or a beer. It doesn't take much. Your hit rate on asking for that sort of thing, if you're sincere in your request, is going to be pretty, pretty good. Yeah. Most people are extremely honored and gratified to be yeah. asked for their advice. So yeah, you're, you're doing yourself a favor by sharing your vulnerability. You're doing them, um, you know, a, a goodness by saying, I recognize you as someone that I feel I could learn some things from. I'm putting it in very formal terms. That's not what happens in the real world. We say, gee, you know, uh, that was a great story. How did you, how did you find out about that? And you, you get to know somebody, Yeah, you get to learn something. And there's informal and formal, a lot of informal, which is over coffee and ask a question and say, you know, can I pick your, your brain a little bit? Yes, there can be formal mentorship. And sometimes that can go from informal to formal, but it doesn't have to be go and ask the person, hey, would you be willing to meet with me once a month for the next three years? That's probably not the opening line. <laughs> no, 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 no. But um, again, uh, you may have contacts from college classmates who've gone in uh, different yeah. directions. Uh, professors, when you are at college, you have the opportunity to get to know uh, the instructors and the staff. Um, and those relationships can last a lifetime. So yeah, so, definitely. take advantage. So let's go back to, uh, to young Bill. Are there any, you know, a couple of things you would, uh, if you were sitting down across from yourself, uh, you know, some time ago, what advice would you give yourself? Um, the same advice that I gave to my kids when they were little, which is remember that there are three different things. There are feelings, there are beliefs, and there are facts. Feelings come and go. So you got to learn to roll with it. Beliefs are important and they can be the core of thing, but the primacy of facts can't be ignored. If you learn something that is contrary to your belief, it's a matter of character growth to be able to say, okay, that belief is no longer operational. Now, some things will never be disproved. There are some things that are only in the realm of belief and that's, and that's fine. But yeah, that would be, that would be the most important thing. I kind of wish that I had gotten that straight. Um, there were times when my heart said, do this. And I went ahead and did it without realizing that that feeling was gonna, was gonna morph. Sure. Okay. So Bill, what uh, if you look ahead, as we start to wrap up, what are you most excited about uh, in the future? And I think part of this question is sometimes we have people ask, you know, if I want to be very, very valuable five or 10 years from now, you know, would I get into AI now? Would I get into machine learning now? Would I get into crypto? Uh, you know, what would I get into or what would I study to, to be, you know, to be really in, a, in the right place at some future time? Well, um, AI is promising. Uh, there are some very exciting things that are going on with AI. I think interface design is going to be much more important. That's how we interact with whatever the device is, uh, how we let the computer know what we intend, uh, as opposed to just turning the steering wheel by hand and making sure that the algorithms and the computational power necessary to make that a safe turn uh, are actually properly implemented and properly protected. So yeah, become familiar with um, some of the principles of cybersecurity. Take a look at what goes on. Follow the news sources. Uh, SANS, uh, S-A-N-S Institute, does a daily newsletter. Subscribe to it. There's no charge. It, they summarize what's going on. And as you look through the list, you'll find there's some things that keep showing up, some themes that 
that may strike you. Uh, take a look, The Register, a wonderful British publication. God, I love their use of language. And they highlight articles, usually with an ironical cast, but the facts are, are solid. Uh, get involved in various kinds of, of news sources. Uh, see how what, what excites your imagination, uh, what feeds you. Um, I will say that I think uh, crypto, in the sense of cryptocurrency, is probably not a long-term play. Uh, China has forbidden it outright. And we're beginning to see the huge environmental costs of mining uh, various kinds of cryptocurrency are such that I think regula environmental regulations will effectively shut down that aspect of the business. You're talking about power consumption. Yeah. 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 Really That's expensive. It is, it is cheaper to drive an electric car from Seattle to Boston and buy an ice cream cone with cash and then drive it back than it is to mine a Bitcoin in Seattle in order to buy an ice cream cone. The economics of that, I mean, imagine if it took us $100 million to print a $1 bill. Nobody would print $1 bills. And yet that's what we're chasing with, with cryptocurrency mining, which is why there are so many people doing it illegally. They're, they're stealing machine cycles from other people's machines yeah. to enrich themselves. Does that uh, same potential cautionary flag apply to, to all blockchain application? Well, it's interesting. Traditional blockchain requires that each person solve a harder and harder problem to put the next block on the chain. That creates a risk in that if you have a fairly small group that's running a chain, you can get you know, 55 people to join up with you and you can take over the chain. So what organizations have done to combat that is they'll use what's called a permissioned blockchain, that there's a fixed list of people who are allowed to put new blocks on the chain. And you say, oh, okay, well, that solves that problem. But then stop and think what you've done. You've basically just created a, you know, a shared Google spreadsheet with a password. And if you're going to do that, you don't need any of the overhead of blockchain. So yeah, I don't, I don't see uh, blockchain in its raw native form as, as having any kind of significant productive application. All of the commercial applications involving blockchain that I have run across are permissioned. And at that point, you might as well just share a spreadsheet and pass around a password. So what, what most excites you then looking forward? What technology or possibility or? Oh, Internet of Things and industrial Internet of Things. I, without giving away any personal health information, I would love a world where I could get a monthly injection of nanites that would circulate my blood, that would get rid of clots, that would take care of any uh, imbalance in salt or sugar, uh, and that would tell me of any upcoming event that I'd want to be known about. But here's the problem. If I have a billion uh, nanites in my bloodstream and the code quality is six sigma, that means I'm suffering a stroke every two or three hours. <laughs> okay. If we're going to deploy massive amounts of tiny robots to do that kind of stuff, like keeping people healthy and alive, then we're going to have to figure out how to make code that is three or four orders of magnitude better than we're able to do now. And that's a hard problem. And if that kind of thing is a hard problem that excites you, then learn about it, study it, and try to think about solutions. I had a friend who was pursuing ordination. And in the course of this, he talked with a priest Episcopal priest, about 
what kind of area he should look at. And the priest's suggestion was, go where the pain is. If you see something that just really is wrong, that just isn't working, and of course, we're talking about spiritual matters of social justice, but this applies in a professional career as well. If you see people building bridges and the bridges keep falling down, you know, and that bugs you, well, then figure it out, you know, science your way out of this stuff to take a line from the Martian. There are real hard problems and hard problems have real solutions. And it's up to here. It's up to this stuff to figure out how to do that. And, and that's, that's the word I'd, I'd hope that anybody uses as their touchstone on how to find their way forward to their career. Well, awesome. All right. Thank you, Bill Mallet, VP of Infrastructure Strategies at Trend Micro. Uh, what a great uh, interview. I think there are a lot of really good nuggets there for people to, uh, to potentially think about for their own career paths. And uh, you've had such an amazing, interesting career touching on so many storied, well-known uh, brands and uh, you know, companies that you, you've had roles at. Um, and uh, uh, probably one of the most well-rounded individuals I've had a chance to interview uh, as far as all the, the slices of the sort of um, industry pie that you've, uh, you've intimately touched. This comes to be the sort of uh, ending that I love to do and where I sort of steal something, borrow something from another show from uh, Inside the Actor Studio, which I always enjoyed. It was syndicated in over 100 countries. And the longtime host who has now passed, unfortunately, was James Lipton. And he borrowed something that he called the Pivot Questionnaire from a French show, uh, from Bernard Pivot. And so I think this is going now maybe a hundred years full arc. Uh, and I'm borrowing the same questionnaire. If you're up for it, we'll end the show with that. Let's give it a go. Okay. What is your favorite word? Warm. What is your least favorite word? Itchy. <laughs> what turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Oh, it's, it's Mozart. I want to say Beethoven, but it's Mozart. The string quartets. <laughs> What turns you off? New age. <laughs> you know, do something a little different, you know? What is your favorite curse word? Uh, when I'm coding my uh, podcast and I have a curse word, my favorite curse word is golly. <laughs> uh, what sound or noise do you love? Oh, a, a baby laughing. What sound or noise do you hate? I mean, there it's going to be the flip side. It's, you know a grown-up person who's racked with despair and in tears. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Well, I, I did have the opportunity to be a disc jockey, and that was fun. That would, be, that would be fun to do. Although it's so automated now that there aren't really very many, you know, Wolfman Jacks left out there. There used to be a guy in L.A. named Al Jasbo Collins who ran a jazz show I used to listen to in high school. He was great. What profession would you like to not do? Um, driving a bus, constant stress, you know, a service industry type job. And in that when you do it perfectly, nobody notices that would be frustrating. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? What took you so long? <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you, Bill Malik, VP of infrastructure strategy at trend micro. Thank you for an intimate view into your career journey and a, um, a fun insight into who you are and, and the things you've done along the way and some, some great experience shares for everybody. Thank you, Derek. I really appreciate your time and this opportunity. Take care. Be well. See you next time.